Welcome to Military Network Radio, where we'll bring dynamic interviews and fresh information about topics affecting your quality of life at each stage of your military service. Join us each week for information of value that improves your outlook, actions, and encourages each member of the family. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Everyone serves, and together we make a difference. And now, here's your host, Linda Crater. Welcome to Military Network Radio. I'm Linda Crater, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Justin Constantine as co-host. And we have a great show for you this morning. It's a chilly morning here on the East Coast, and we are going to be talking to Byron Chen. And Byron has really wrapped his head around a topic that is little discussed. We often talk about reintegration on this program, uh, coming, adjusting, after service, etc., but I love the topic that Byron has actually written a book about and has studied well and gives great pointers on. And it's where, – where am I? Barracks to boardrooms, negotiating your salary after serving in the military. So in addition to being able to translate from military speak into civilian speak, there's also how do you translate what you should be paid? And I think salary negotiation is always a touchy topic for people, but coming – from the military, you have some specific challenges. So we are very happy to welcome Byron Chen to our program this morning. He's a United States Naval Academy graduate, was an officer in the Marine Corps, six years of active duty, deployment, and has written books and been on podcasts, and he's very experienced. And we are delighted to have you here this morning, Byron. Welcome. Linda, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Justin. Yeah, I, we were looking forward to this program because it really does touch on an incredibly important point. While we all want to be significant in this world, it's nice to have our significance affirmed by our salaries commensurate with our skills. That doesn't always happen, and sometimes it's sequential and you have to take your lower steps to get to your higher steps, but it is a very important topic. So can you explain why and I believe this, I'm correct on this, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know that salary negotiation is included in any of the transition courses when you leave the military, is it? No, I, I, it's definitely not. Uh, I went through those transition courses through the Marine Corps a little over two years ago now, and they, it, was, it was a topic that wasn't touched upon at all. And it really, it comes down to a matter of time. Uh, I think you know, and Justin knows, most of these transition assistant classes uh, at best, are a week long uh, mm-hmm. for any of these services. So they're really just trying to get in uh, as much information as they can and the most basic information that they can uh, when service members are, are leaving the military. So it's really the onus is on service members to you know take on the skills and, and, and learn the things that they need to to be successful in their careers and lives after the military. And that, that can be really difficult, especially if you know, nobody's given you any idea or any training and on top of that, salary negotiation is not something just people in general like to talk about. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have another stigma to overcome and you go out into the real world or, or, excuse me, you transition into the private sector and nobody tells you how important this is to, like you were saying, Linda, get adequately paid for whatever you, it is that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, and you also have the translation difficulty. We've often talked about how translating the MOS skills over to <coughs> civilian speak, if you will, is challenging, but I, I have not ever heard anyone talking about salary negotiation. I'm going to bring up an interesting point to me. Um, I have heard many vets 
talk about the fact that they're just not getting the level of jobs that they want. I would imagine that also ties into the salaries that they get. Do you think in your mind that as you've studied this and written about it, that just transitioning into the military portion is what people are focusing on and getting that job and that the salary negotiation is almost an afterthought at that point because getting the job is more important. Oh, definitely, definitely. Uh, and and not only did I study it, really, I, I the, the start of all this was, yeah, I went <laughs> through it and I, I saw how difficult it was. And, and, you know, I was pretty confident leaving the military and then I realized, you know what, it's it's very difficult. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I left with a bunch of my peers, saw a lot of friends and uh, that left the military. And yes, that first transition is very difficult. But I would say for the most of us, after a year or two, we figured it out, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we understood what we had to translate in our military backgrounds. I'm still not perfect at it. Uh, a lot of my friends aren't either. But we started to realize, hey, there are certain things that uh, our military backgrounds are really great for. Uh, we just had to figure out how to how to say it. Now, going along with that, uh, a lot of us, you know, either got promoted or went into new positions. And when we did that, we negotiated our salaries because that mm-hmm. comes along with, you know, that comes along with the territory. When you can translate your skills, you can translate your value, and that means you can really, you know, leverage that and get paid higher and and be able to negotiate your salary. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a learning process. But uh, I mean, it's it's no different than it's I, I see it as no different than anything else that you're learning when you're, you're leaving the military. But you raise a very important point, because when I've just done a cursory overview with a group of veterans, they will talk about that they don't feel they're being paid commensurate with their abilities, but they never spoke to anyone about it. Right. And I think there are a lot of people who let life happen to them if you will, uh, or it just isn't foremost at their minds at the time. But talking about salary is difficult for almost everyone. And yet, if you do talk about it, you are able to clear the air in many ways and be able to uh, announce your value in different ways to your prospective employer, which people will tell you later on made them value you more. Exactly, exactly. And it, you know what? It's it's so true, not just for veterans, but for mm-hmm. anybody. Uh, in my research, the majority of people don't uh, ask for, don't negotiate their salaries when they first get a job or uh, mid-career. I mean, it just is difficult. Uh, one, because it's a taboo subject for most people. Two, nobody has taught them, so they don't have a mentor or they haven't uh, learned from any of their peers. And then three, they are they don't do the research themselves, so they're not very prepared when they go in. Uh, but these aren't problems that you know a genius needs to solve. These are things that uh, that uh, you can pick up pretty quickly, and that's why I wrote the book. But honestly, I I think that uh, just about anybody is equipped for salary negotiation. They just have to uh, do the research for what the what their mm-hmm. market value is, mm-hmm. and then be able to convey that professionally and and courteously. Well, Byron, when you talk about doing the research, um, what do you mean by that? And also. Uh, why should veterans or anyone else think that salary uh, negotiations are an option? Oh, great questions, Justin. So I'll break that uh, break uh, yeah. those two down real quick. But first, I'll let me start off with the second part of the question about like why why it's important. Um, in my research, it showed that most employers one <coughs> uh, 
add some flexibility when they offer you your initial salary, mm-hmm. right? Because they expect most people to negotiate, but because many people don't, these companies get a discount on the people they're hiring. They love it, right? They don't, they, they'll take a great employee any day and they'll just give them a minimum raise for the rest of their careers. And, and that company's coming out on top. It's, it's, it's a great win for them. Uh, so on the flip side, as an, as an employee, you have to go in with the mindset as, hey, I have to evaluate whatever offer that I'm getting and making sure that it's a good deal for me. And a good deal doesn't necessarily mean that just that you're high paid. It also means that all the little details, things like time off, uh, health benefits, um, the expenses that are paid off, that they work for you because you know, it doesn't work for everybody. And most likely your company gave you a boilerplate contract that they give everybody else. So you want to make sure like, the details work for you as well. Um, so that the, the second part of that, Justin, uh, the research, and this is where uh, I think veterans can do a very good job of, of preparing for a salary negotiation. So when you look at research, you want to figure out what the market value is. Now, there are a bunch of websites uh, like Payscale, uh, Ladder, Monster, Salary.com where you can do research. One of my favorites is Visador. Uh, and the reason uh, I mentioned this one is because I, I don't hear anybody else talking about it. Visador is a website that for any company that hires uh, foreign workers and then uh, sponsors their visas, they have to provide and make public the information of salary. So you can look at a position and look up the salary. And you, now you have generally you know, what that position, what that uh, salary range is for, for that industry. And that's important because when you negotiate a salary – you're not going to ask for something crazy. You do have to ask for something reasonable. So that's the, that's the research that you have to do. Um, the problem is most people don't, don't, don't dig in. And so when they get that offer from their employer, they're, they're kind of got that deer in the headlights look and think, well, yeah, sure, I'll accept this. And, and, and they don't realize that they're being paid less than the rest of the industry. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Visa door, for instance, like I, I hadn't heard of that before either. I imagine most people haven't. So that is one good um, one good avenue, but if you're if your company that you're, or you're applying isn't taking advantage or isn't isn't hiring people from overseas, that may not work. But I can I can see how uh, for a veteran who is who's frankly whose pay scale is published on a federal website, why it would be counterintuitive to even think that that's a negotiable uh, item is a salary, and to know what to ask for, or really to know. What it takes, uh, what they're what they're looking for, because now there's different tax issues that we're not used to dealing with. Because our BAH well, was tax free before, and maybe the gyms on base were free and stuff like that. So I think it takes a lot of work on on the side of the veteran to really know what to ask for. It does. I mean, it's just a matter of doing your homework, and uh, even if you don't have, even if let's say that company doesn't hire people, uh, foreign workers, and, and doesn't put that information on visa door. Uh, what I tell people is uh, as a veteran, one of your greatest assets is that you have access to the greatest network in the world. Yeah. Uh, you can ask a, another service member. I I'm willing to bet either in your industry or even in that company, or at least in that region with a similar position uh, or, or who can give you some, some gouge really about, about that company and about the salary. So those, uh, that's, the, that's the other thing that I think uh, veterans can rely on uh, that really makes a difference when it comes down to salary negotiation. Do you talk about LinkedIn at all in your book? I do. I mean, I, I say LinkedIn is a, is a great way to, uh, to reach out to other veterans. I mean, that's how I got my start. 
um, figuring out, you know, how I was going to transition and and what I was going to do after leaving the Marine Corps. Yeah, I would think uh, veterans, as you kind of mentioned, are a good resource because we probably uh, know, we're used to being very blunt and probably we we happy to talk about something as touchy as salary with another veteran more so than a typical civilian would be. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the things is to remove that stigma of yeah. salary negotiation first and then figure out how do I, how do I make it work for me? And that's what okay. veterans should be thinking. Let's hold that thought. We're going to go on a short break. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We'll be right back. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. It's the Fitness Minute with fitness expert, Annette Hammond. Many of us look forward to the holidays all year long. It is such a magnificent opportunity to get together with family and friends and decorate and give gifts and eat the most delicious food. But numerous people dread the holidays. As far as their weight, health, and exercise are concerned, they know they'll have so much temptation and chances to derail their healthy lifestyle. Many just resolve themselves into thinking that gaining weight over the holidays is a fact and there is no way to avoid it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I want you to embrace the holidays. Have a plan before you go to any dinner, party, or event and decide what you're going to eat and stick with it. Yes, there will be temptation, but you can overcome it. Stay with the plan and reap the benefits. You can contact us at fitnessminute at annettehammond.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're talking with Byron Chen, who wrote the book, Barracks to Boardrooms, Negotiating Your Salary After Serving in the Military. Justin raised a very good point prior to the break about the use of LinkedIn and networking. I think in addition to finding it difficult to talk about salaries, sometimes people don't know where to start. And we were saying that that was a good way to become acquainted with people on a more personal level and perhaps a one-on-one discussion about a topic that can be very private for some. Maybe we'll start back there and then talk about are there any risks to talking to people that way? And what is your recommended method for finding out about the salary market values, et cetera? Well, so Linda, uh, it's definitely a great resource using LinkedIn to talk to people in the industry or the companies that you're interested in uh, to get more information. Uh, But I definitely don't recommend coming straight out and asking about salaries. (laughs) One, it makes it seem like that's the only thing that matters to you. Uh, two, it can be too direct. Uh, like anything else, or, or you know, coming from the military, uh, I, it's kind of like uh, you want to develop some rapport first and, and just feel it out and see if, it, if somebody's willing to give it to you, uh, that sort of information. Uh, treat it like an informational interview, as in you're, you're looking for a whole range of information, and it's, and it's all good. Uh, and then on a one-on-one basis, uh, like you were mentioning right before uh, we came back on, uh, that's definitely okay, I think. Uh, you want to be careful talking to current uh, employees of a company that uh, 
you might interview with because right. one, sometimes that's not allowed by their policies uh, to give that, provide that information. And you know, you, it, this could be somebody that you're working with. So if you start figuring out what the salaries are of everybody in your company is that, that could, uh, that could make it a, an awkward situation. So that, that's something you want to tread lightly and be careful about, make sure you know the policies. But I mean, there's so many companies out there with positions that are similar. I think you could definitely find somebody uh, to talk to on LinkedIn about it. So when you are talking, let's say you're a prospective uh, employee and you're talking to a large multinational corporation and you think you've pretty much found out where the salary ranges would be or it's published that the ranges are between this and this, that part is important, the salary itself. Can you talk a little bit about some of the other things, the non-financial negotiations. You briefly mentioned it in the beginning, but there are other ways that you can have perks to the job that make for a higher quality of life that may be more important to you. Oh, definitely. And I think these are uh, little things that, that people don't realize that can make a really big difference uh, that, they, that they should be interested in. It's not all about pay. Uh, sometimes it's about the amount of sick leave, sick leave or the amount of paid time off that you have. Mm-hmm. I think one of the great ones is telecommuting or being able to work from home because it's mm-hmm. it's one of those things where it doesn't really cost the company any money. But if you can do your work at home, I mean, that, that gives you a lot of flexibility in your scheduling. Uh, I know for, for some of my friends who have negotiated that, uh, it completely changes their lifestyle. They can arrange their work day around picking up and dropping off their kids. So it's mm-hmm. a huge quality of life difference. Not mm-hmm. every company allows it, but you have to do the research and, and realize that before you negotiate. Uh, and honestly, it's a, it's a negotiation. It's a contract. Really, anything is on the table, uh, depending on how, how open and creative your, your company is willing to be. But I've seen people negotiate things like gift cards or, or even uh, luncheons with the, with the CEO because they want to make sure that they get an audience with top executives at the company. So if, if, you're, if your company is open to something like that, you could definitely negotiate. Or if it's uh, like, like most other industries, I think things like, uh, like vacation time or sick days and, and telecommuting are, are, are pretty, pretty normal nowadays. That they, it's something that you could definitely bring up with your employer. Hey, Byron, hey when you and I first met, it was last year out at um, Stanford for the Stanford Ignite program for veterans who were had already launched their own businesses or were thinking about it. And one of the exercises we did there was a mock, um, <clears throat> exactly what you're discussing here, a mock negotiation between a recruiter and a potential employee where we sat down and each side, unbeknownst to the other, had a number of criteria that were important to them, they were scaled to be important and what they were willing to give up and what they weren't. And so obviously ours was a, a very quick, it was a 20-minute process or something like that. Uh, and it was, it was enlightening because we got to see all the things you just labeled or discussed were on that list and, and some other things as well. When you did your research for the book and, and talked to some of your friends who have gone through the negotiation process, just mechanically, how did it work? Did they... They sit down with the recruiter and say, well, I appreciate the offer. Here's where I stand on these different things. Or How, how does it really play out? So it, it usually plays out. When we're talking about initial offer, uh, you know, you just went through an interview process. The company's ready to hire you, and they give you an offer. 
usually it's a verbal one or they might email you a contract and ask you to take a look at it. That's when you uh, mechanically, I, I would say, ask for a couple days to take a look over it uh, just so that you can get all the different aspects of the contract and, under, and evaluate it for, yeah. for you know, what it's worth to you. But that's when you start, start thinking about your counter. And the counter could just be a simple email back or it could be something that you prepare and what you're really thinking about in the counter and kind of what we learned in that saw in that exercise is there are some things that the company values very highly and there are things that you value very highly and vice versa. And so you're trying to come to an agreement about you know, how to make that contract work. So, uh, Justin, for example, I, one of the things I remember from that exercise was, you know, sometimes a company was trying to hire somebody for a certain position uh, in a certain, yeah, let's region. say, region of the country. And yeah. that was very important to them. Now, yeah. for you, you don't you might not mind moving to that area of the country, but the company doesn't know that. So you need to realize that, hey, you know, there's value in that. Perhaps I could, you know, say, hey, it's I'm going to make this feel this great need for you uh, uh, for your this, you know, as a company. You know, I would like to uh, see if there's you know, and if any flexibility in the contract to to recognize that, hey, I'm making a big move to fill this position in this separate in this uh, other area of the country. So. Uh, when you're when you're taking time to prepare your counter, those are the things that you're trying to think about. What is it that the company values, right? It's not about you. It's not about what you want to make. It's hey, what do I have? What do I bring to the table that really makes a difference for for the company I'm about to be hired onto? And uh, that the next thing you do is just really just translating that into into a, a conversation that you have with your uh, employer. One of the things you're both bringing up is something that I find veterans are very reluctant to do, and that is to role play. It's not common. In in missions, you practice everything over and over and over again for body memory. But in role playing for job positions, I hear people much less inclined to role play. They'll say, no, no, I've, I've got it. I've got my list. I know what to do. But there is great value in verbalizing it and the other person playing devil's advocate and giving you the what ifs and the contingencies. Do you find, or did you find in the research for your book that it's becoming more accepted and, and op- the people are more open to role playing things like this? You know, Linda, I don't know if it's more acceptable uh, because if, if it wasn't, it, it wouldn't have been something I needed to mention in the book because I definitely right. talk about it a couple of times about, okay. you know what, the salary negotiations are difficult. Most people aren't experienced with it, but that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. as, as a veteran, you understand, like you just mentioned, the importance of practice and, and going through uh, the, the procedures mm-hmm. uh, to be able to execute. And, and one of the things I suggest in the book is that, hey, I, I put together a bunch of tactics that you can use but you have to figure out which ones you're comfortable with, right? Some, t- some people are really comfortable just laying out, hey, this is the number that I want to be paid versus some people are very much more comfortable saying, hey, this is the range that my research has shown and this is what I would like the company to consider when they bring me on. You know, very, two different, very different ways of talking, but both can be mm-hmm. effective, but it really depends on that, you know, how that person communicates that. You know, if you're not confident and, and clear when you do that, then you, you, might, you still might not get the offer because the, the company will just, just roll you over. So you know, practice helps, but also just knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, like you were saying, I mean, unless, you, unless you've done it with somebody else before, you don't know which one sounds best coming out of your mouth. Well, the other thing is that these people hiring have had tons of practice with asking yeah. these questions. Yeah. They know how to parry your uh, 
questions and to redirect you because it is their goal to get the most value out of a new employee while still recognizing and affirming their value to the company. Um, I would love to ask you, and you probably have stories galore, what are some of the biggest pitfalls or stories that you heard while you were doing the research for the book where people (laughs) were negotiating? Well, I'm so glad that you, the, the way you put it, that, that, that person sitting across from you and the, uh, who represents the company, their job is to extract the most value mm-hmm. out of you. And, and it's their job. There's no, it's, not, it's not personal. If they, if they give you a lowball offer, it's, it's really a business because that's, that's their job to do well for the company. Uh, I would say from my end, the biggest pitfall uh, we've, we've already talked about is, is not even negotiating at all. Uh, because if you if you present an offer, and this is what I want to 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 get into everybody's heads, is that just because you you know try to negotiate does not mean you're going to win, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But if you don't try, you have uh, no opportunity to increase your income or make a contract work for you. So if if you don't speak up, then then you don't get a chance to sit at the table and talk. So what happens for most people because they don't negotiate? then they just accept the offer and they move on, right? Most companies, and, and Linda, you can tell me if this is true or not, but most companies aren't going to come up and say, come back and say, oh, well, you know, we thought you were going to negotiate. You didn't. So you know what? Let's throw in a little bit extra money. For this. <laughs> if only they did. Right, um, right. It, no, it just and doesn't often, happen. Well, not only that, but there's often body language involved and, and you're, you're, you're right on the edge. You, you want this job, but you would like to negotiate some things. And so there are risks on both sides. Um, where you do things. But if you don't ask, you know, you miss every shot you don't take. So I think that many companies really do respect when you ask good questions, um, ask about a fit for you. So they learn a little bit more about what's important to you. And it just may be that that makes the fit better and even more respected when you do have an interchange. Justin, you had a question? Yeah, well, I want to ask about the fit. And it's it's not directly related to uh, negotiating uh, in your position. But one issue we see in the veteran space is a lot, a lot of times I'll take a job coming out of the military just for the sake of taking a job. It's not a good fit. They don't last a long time. And maybe it's not until the second or third job where they really find a good career and they can really excel there and bring to the table all the skills that we know veterans have. Is that something you explored at all, Byron, when you talked about doing your research yeah, I, I'd said one of the advantages most veterans have is uh, just no matter what position, even if it's an entry level position that you're going into, veteran isn't somebody who, who just left school and doesn't have skills and work experience. And skills and work experience are what employers are usually working for first, right? So mm-hmm. uh, e- even if this, the, the job doesn't require it, you could say, well, I'm also bringing leadership, I'm also bringing project management. Uh, skills that will really make me excel very quickly. Uh, you know, is there flexibility in the offer for me to get an accelerated performance review? And you know, in case I could get promoted earlier, or you know, maybe I could get a bonus for for the skills that I am bringing. And uh, that's something veterans, you know, across the board have. Versus, uh, let's say their civilian compa- counterparts who are also interviewing for that position. Yeah, you're right. We, we've given a lot of soft skills that are, should be part of the negotiation process. Yeah. But you have to be the one that brings it up because yeah. you know, most people don't understand that. You're um, exactly until right. You do. Um, we are going on another short break, and we will be back uh, after a commercial message. You're listening to Military Network Radio with Byron Chen, Justin Constantine, and myself, and we'll be right back. 
Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. If you're ready for a big change in your work, your career, your happiness, your life, it's time for the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 central on toginet.com. Marla believes that with the right mindset, anything is possible. Join us as successful life coach Marla Tabaka inspires you and her clients to explore, discover, and live your dreams by developing what she calls the Million Dollar Mindset. Marla will inspire you to take action on your dreams and reveal secrets to success that will help you realize your own unique power. Tune into the Million Dollar Mindset for heartwarming stories with Marla Tabaka. Learn tips and tricks to building a successful business and unlock the secrets to creating a happier, more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. For more information on the Million Dollar Mindset, go to our website, MarlaTabaka.com. That's M-A-R-L-A-T-A-B-A-K-A.com. It's the Million Dollar Mindset with Marla Tabaka. Monday afternoons at 2, 1 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Byron Chen. And and Byron, I'm going to take a step back to what I probably should have asked you in the very first place. Why did you write the book about salary negotiation? What was your motivation? Well, it's it's a combination of things, really, and... I guess it, it first starts off with uh, when I when I first left the military, I was uh, saw how difficult the transition was. Felt that there needed to be a bridge resource for veterans between uh, right after they left till you know when they got their 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 feet on the ground and can figure things out. Uh, so I started SuccessVets.com. That's a transition resource site. Uh, you can see find articles. You can find other things that I've written and and. Uh, I also host a podcast there talking with veterans who have done some pretty awesome things since they left the military. And one of the questions that I kept getting was about salary negotiation. And people were asking me for advice. And I had negotiated my salary a few times, you know, after I'd gone through the corporate uh, ladder a little bit. And fortunately, I had some mentors who who taught me some things. And I was doing the research. And I figured, you know what? Uh, I just went through this process. Uh, I Fortunately, I've been... Uh, trained and, and I've had great leaders who've taught me this skill, you know, I can pass it along. I, I don't feel like I'm an expert, but, uh, you know, just like when I was in the military, my, my job was to translate, um, you know, either certain tactics or, or certain, uh, certain goals and, and, and translate that into skills that uh, my Marines could practice and execute. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know what, I, I might as well put it together because this is the number one thing that I keep getting asked 
beyond, you know, just how do I get a good job after the military? And, uh, and that was the impetus for the book about, about a year ago today. Oh, have, happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah. It is very important, though, and we're seeing more and more of it, that vets are truly helping other vets. So they get out, and the, the real motivation behind a lot of these uh, transition-type books or Justin's inspirational speeches or anything along those lines is truly to help your your fellow service members um, to to make it easier and smoother so they don't have to go through they can make their own mistakes but they can avoid your mistakes <laughs> and i gotta be honest linda i mean the uh, for selfish reasons i wrote this book because i i feel great about helping other veterans right and if if that wasn't part of the goal of the book i probably i don't think i, I could have finished right. it you know i i just uh, i mean it means a lot to me and it's the way mm-hmm. i stay connected to the vet the uh, veteran and military community. And so it, it means a lot to me to be able to put this out there for to hopefully help a lot of veterans. I agree with you. Helping others helps you. And, and yeah. that is a very strong part. Justin, any questions well, for Byron? I, just an observation that what you just said, Byron, is, is completely consistent with the Marine Corps leadership principles and the rest of the services as well, where it's not mm-hmm. about you, but it's about taking care of those around you. And uh, it's a privilege to leave people not a right. And so I, I think that with your book, you're, you're continuing uh, being in a leadership position like you enjoy in the Marine Corps. And a lot of I people appreciate benefit. that. And uh, I am trying to uh, do that a little bit for sure. And and uh, also, I mean, the same thing that you, you two are doing with what you communicate in, in this uh, on this show is just that there's a lot of information out there and can be overwhelming. But, uh, you know, once you figure it out or, or once you start learning from others, it's like, oh, okay, I get other people have done it uh, before before me, then, you know, I can do it as well. And that, that's, I think that's the other message because I definitely talk about some mistakes that I've made in the book and, you know, things that I didn't know and, and uh, things that I, I messed up when I was going through my own salary negotiations. So I think uh, some veterans would appreciate that as well. I think they appreciate it more than you know because I think everybody wants to hear real stories. If you read a book or, or read an article about something where everything went so smoothly and then the real world shows you that it doesn't work that way, um, it really isn't as real and genuine. So vets talking to vets, families talking to families, I think it all makes great sense. And it's just been a pleasure having you on here today. Well, thank you so much. It's been, it's been a pleasure and honor to uh, be speaking with both of you. Well, thank you. We're going to do a bit of a pivot now. Uh, before we do that, let's oh, talk about you, where they can find the book. Oh, yes, oh, absolutely. Right. <laughs> so Amazon.com? Yes, yes. I uh, Just search Barracks to Boardrooms or uh, Byron Chen. Uh, that, should ta- that should be the uh, top big. You can get it on uh, Kindle uh, or uh, in paperback. Wonderful. And I will make sure I put that in the show announcement when we post the show after our broadcast today. Absolutely. Um, because we really do love sharing vets books, vets work, vets websites with everyone. It really does help build the net, the safety net. And Linda, I just wanted to mention real quick, uh, this is probably an opportunity most people won't have with uh, authors of books, but uh, I I do have my, my website, successvets.com. And if people have any questions from, from reading the book, they could always email me, at Byron at successfest.com. And, and that's, you know, definitely something I've done before. And I'm okay. willing to help people uh, as much as I can, uh, possibly, with, mm-hmm. with uh, any specific questions they might have when it comes to a negotiation. I think that is a very right. generous offer. Yeah. So thank you for that. 
Anything yeah, else totally. I missed, Justin? No, that's it. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Just, just, just being sure that <laughs> I, I don't. Yeah. Um, this next portion of our program is, is going to be a little different than our general format. Um, I asked Justin if he would mind talking about, and we will have a discussion about, a posting he put on LinkedIn last week. And it was titled, Here's What You Should Ask the Presidential Candidates About the Military. And it was a number of very thoughtful questions that those in the military and families of are probably keenly interested in. And as you know, they only have soundbite information that can be uh, conveyed in most of the debate forums or in any of the town hall meetings. And it, it isn't often that we are able to raise some questions and just have a general discussion on what are some of the things that are important. So, Justin, why don't you start this conversation? Okay, well, yeah, thanks, Linda. And really, my motivation for writing the article was because uh, it is obviously the presidential election season, a lot of veterans, a lot of Americans are going to have an opportunity to be in front of people running for the highest office in the country, whether it's in Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, or whatever state it is. These candidates are making themselves very accessible, and they want to talk to as many people as possible. So these are uh, seven questions I came up with that I would like to ask a, a presidential candidate, whether Republican or Democrat, mm-hmm. uh, on, on issues that that I think uh, represent questions we'd like to answer in the veteran community based on what we hear in the media from a lot of these candidates. The, uh, and, and really... We hear a lot of bombastic language. Uh, well, sometimes we hear bombastic language. Sometimes we hear candidates talking about making it sound like it's a very easy decision to send our troops into a foreign country, knowing full well some of them won't make it back or will come back injured, or disregarding the rules of the law of war and the, and the, uh, the rules we have to follow and just bombing indiscriminately, or, or engaging in other activities that, for those of us who have been there, can be a little frustrating. So that was uh, that was the motivation for my article. You know, I think it's interesting, too. We've had a, a previous show where we talked about the importance of having more veterans running for elected office, That's let right. alone the highest office in the land. And I, I think that your discussion points in your posting bring to light the fact that uh, few serve, and it's a choice to serve. We we, we agree with that. Sure. But it is also helpful when we have more veterans in elected office at a high level, because then the considerations are taken with at least some cursory knowledge from the candidates who are candidates or members of the of Congress who have served. And I think we've seen some high profile vets on the news over the last year or so, and you're going to see more as the election heats up and heats up. But why don't you start with our first question, or I will ask you the first question. Okay, so the first question of uh, Justin's article says, after the war in Iraq, we've seen the problems associated with deploying our forces without a specific end game and exit strategy. If you believe we should deploy more of our military forces to Syria and Iraq now, under what circumstances would you envision bringing them home? Well, the reason uh, the reason why I wrote this question first is because we typically don't go into a military uh, action without backward planning, where we know what our edge strategy is, what our goals are, what we hope to accomplish. And this is that's true in business, 
our personal relationships as well as the military as well as natural. It didn't seem like we really followed that um, in the war in Iraq. And we're, and we're seeing in Afghanistan, it's a struggle on figuring out how we're going to extract ourselves from that and still uh, without allowing Afghanistan to pull right back to where it was 15 years ago. It's a safe haven for terrorists. And so when our politicians talk about deploying our troops to Syria and deploying our troops to Iraq, I, I, would, I would expect veterans to demand to hear, well, for how long, what will they be doing there? And what's our exit strategy? What do we hope to achieve? Because for anyone who thinks that Syria or, or Iraq now is a simple situation, uh, uh, you know, and we can just deploy some troops and drop some bombs and move on, then they've clearly disregarded every lesson we've learned the painful way from Iraq and toppling Saddam Hussein. You know, what's interesting is sometimes we've seen we've seen two issues that I would love to mention. One is that the rules of engagement have sometimes hindered our troops from taking actions that are more directive, if you will. And the second thing is sometimes we tell them exactly when we're leaving. And are there things that you believe should be kept from the public and from our enemies? Um, so two things. So rules of engagement and a, a voiced exit strategy before we really have a strategy for how to get there? Well, I think the rules of engagement are very important. And I think it's helpful if people know what our general rules in other countries uh, and our, certainly our allies know what our general rules of engagement are. Of course, there's always secret rules of engagement as well, which we keep right. private. But, but I do think it's, help, it's, it's good for, for instance, in Afghanistan, I know it's a touchy subject, but where where the local people, and that's the people we're trying to win over, we're trying to help them so we can come back home. If they understand our motivations for what we're doing, why we take kinetic action, and what circumstances we will or won't do that, I think there's only upsides from that. I don't see it as a threat to our our individual soldiers' safety because they always have the right to self-defense. They always have the right to protect themselves. So I think if the local people understand what would what would um, what would serve as a catalyst for us to attack them or 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 take offensive action, then they're going to be less inclined to do that. So uh, as long as everyone understands, we always have the right to defend ourselves. Then really, the laws, the rules of engagement are critical to a to a modern civilized military. Thank you for that. We're going to go on a short break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to Military Network Radio. We're Military Network Radio, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. inspiration and motivation every Friday at noon Eastern Standard Time. Learn how to maximize your mojo and just say no to the status quo. Get inspired and motivated by a fun-loving coach who knows what it's like to get through this thing called life. With your high on life coach, Audra Irwin, each Friday at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time and 12 noon Eastern.
Welcome back to Military Network Radio. Serving the military, their families, and those who care about them. Together, we make a difference. Welcome back to Military Network Radio. We're continuing our discussion with Byron Chen and Justin Constantine about questions that we all feel and have put together on various degrees of strength of opinion about what we should be asking the presidential candidates about the military. We answered the first one in the article that Justin wrote, obviously in a short, cursory way. And there's an analogous one um, among the seven questions that's talking on sort of a follow-up to the first question, which is endgame and exit strategy from Iraq or serving abroad. This one goes on, it's called Studies Show That the Financial Costs Alone of Iraq and Afghanistan will reach at least $5 trillion, with a T, dollars. There were approximately 7,000 lives lost, 50,000 wounded in action, and hundreds of thousands with PTS and traumatic brain injuries. How does that decision, so the, the quantitative and qualitative reasons for going into war, factor into the presidential candidates' opinions? How does that differ in your mind, Justin, or Byron, on how that works in terms of deploying? Well, I'll start off first, Linda. And, uh, you know, the, the, everything we do uh, as a nation should be in our national, what's in our best interest. Our national security is first and foremost. So we shouldn't be doing anything, especially internationally, that's not in our own best interest. And, and so there's a lot of things that fall under that. Obviously, going to war is part of that, defending against uh, international terrorists is part of that, and securing uh, a stable, a stable stabilization in other parts of the world is in our best interest too though because that that enables trade and when countries have liberal democracies we've seen they don't fight against each other they are more open to um, uh, better living environments and less people are disenfranchised and willing to take up arms against each other and so uh, when when we decide how we're going to deploy our troops certainly at home the finances are part of that and as I said in the question, the, the costs are going to exceed, at least studies show, will exceed $5 trillion. A big part of that is because of how many wounded warriors we have mm-hmm. coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan, and that because they are, we are now entitled to some sort of financial compensation on a sliding scale for the rest of our lives, tax-free, that people don't realize how much that amounts to over time. And that should be, I believe, that should be part of the analysis uh, when we're choosing how to deploy our troops. Not necessarily the first analysis, but definitely or the first criteria, but certainly part of the analysis. I would like to hear how our future, someone who thinks they're qualified or wants to be commander-in-chief, how they use that as a factor in their analysis. Um, unfortunately, that's not a point that's really been raised yet. Uh, and it's a, it's a serious question and a complex question, but these are very real uh, issues that have to be considered by the commander-in-chief. And, and I think uh, we've seen that with President Obama, where some people argue that he's not taking enough action. And I think he's very concerned with the, with the cost that, as a nation, we've borne because of Iraq and Afghanistan, for better or worse. But I do think it's very prevalent on his mind. You know, the interesting part about the financial costs that you raise is that that goes hand in hand with the tools that we use for 
helping our veterans and their families afterward, which brings us to the VA and several other agencies that sometimes it does not appear that you throw more money at a problem, it gets better. That works sometimes. But sometimes you've got systemic issues that need addressing. And we've all seen multiple um, secretaries of VA try and change the big paradigm, move the battleship a degree here and there. And it's quite difficult to do, especially with these invisible injuries that unfortunately there still appear to be a contingent in our country, um, even in the medical staff, who don't understand that these are, in many cases, lifelong injuries and do have a substantial cost. Yeah, you're right. There's a cost financially, and there's a cost to their to the individual. There's a cost to their families. Mm-hmm. Uh, how well they're integrating into society if they can if they can perform at the same level as they did before their deployment. You know, there's there's just there's a humanist cost, and so these are all these are all very relevant. I've only heard really the different presidential candidates saying something broad like the VA system is broken. It needs to be fixed. And so my question, you know, in this article says, well, what would you do to fix it? What is broken about it? How can you improve the process that's in place right now? Because the devil is in the details. And I don't need a politician to tell me the system's broken. I'm part of it. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, right. I'm, I'm a receiver on, on this thing. But uh, I really want to, I would like to hear some details. And maybe we will. You know, I think we will, and I think sometimes we are in in their defense of every one of the candidates. If you haven't sat in that office and and taken a look at everything that comes at you in terms of information and intel, I don't know that you would have those answers until you're actually in the job. But I do think that there are some systemic issues such as communication, uh, big bureaucracies, uh, the value of certain employees being able to, as you know, uh, Secretary McDonald now has the ability to, or supposedly has the ability to release yeah. uh, employees that are not doing their job in the way that is best in the best interest of the veterans. But you are looking at a, at a very bloated agency that some people are exceptionally good I think we have to acknowledge that some really are, but sure, a sure. lot are, are really not. And so we, we do have some systemic changes that need to be made, and I'm, I'm not certain that they're that different um, well, for each I, of the I, candidates. They don't seem to yeah. – um, they aren't talking about those sorts of details, but I think sure. that's because they don't get the time to, Justin. Yeah, I think that's part of it, too, is that you know, the, the media only allows them certain sound bites. But as you said in the beginning, this is why it's important – it's important for uh, more of our service members to run for for Congress or different levels of leadership because we're at an all-time low compared right. to World War II of, of our veteran community being represented in the highest levels of, of our government. So one, one solution is not just to figure out ways to tear down the VA, but really to get our voices represented, people who have been yes. to foreign countries and fought for us and understand these problems. Well, it's also how you change the policies, and then you can right. go from there – to change the agencies and, and the communication skills. Byron, you had a question. Oh, I was going to say uh, one of the things I really like about these questions, Justin, is that uh, I don't. I, when I was reading them, I, I don't know if uh, you necessarily had an answer in mind for each of these questions, but when I look at it, I see, you know what? There are a lot of complex issues that require an a in-depth thought that, that 
if somebody were to ask the, the, the candidates these questions, we would be seeing not just, you know, what they feel about going to war in general, but, you know, have they thought about any of these things in depth? And it, 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 those, th- that's the big complaint that I think as a, you know, recently transitioned veterans that I have is it feels like, uh, you know, veterans are veterans and the military in general is kind of set aside and, and it, you know, policies haven't been given the, the enough shrift that they deserve. So I think, you know, that's what your, your questions highlight. But unfortunately, I was also going to say, I think these questions are way too good for, <laughs> for any, any <laughs> candidate to, to answer because they're not going to be able to get it in a single soundbite. No, well, you're right. But I think we would get this. We would get a sense, as, as you said, if they sat down and put serious thought into these issues where, where, for instance, one candidate said he wanted to pull together a coalition of 100,000 soldiers to fight in the Middle East against ISIS. And 10 percent of that, 10,000, would be from the U.S. So I, wanna, I would like to hear, um, you know, an explanation for why, why uh why that number? <laughs> yeah, why that number? Why that's okay? Why Americans should be okay with that? And if if ISIS is such an existential threat, for instance, to our national security, that we're willing to put ten thousand of our soldiers on the front line and possibly be killed. Well, you're raising these questions are all excellent, and I think that on both sides, uh, Democratic or Republican, you've got some with some extensive experience. In analogous areas that could answer these questions, you've also got some uh, history with some others. But this would be wonderful for a town hall meeting because that's probably the only time that they would get the time to answer this. Or since you published this in the Huffington Post, maybe this is sent to – one of these questions is sent each week to each of the candidates and, and you get a written answer. That would be kind of interesting. Yeah. But I, I, I do think that it is – the American people are listening, though, to what the veterans are saying. And I think that one of the things you mentioned there, where did they get this 10,000? My guess is that they each have military advisors in their groups. And so you're getting the opinion of that person. And there are only so many advisors and they're – so many opinions and this is a huge process to elect a president and this is an enormous issue and our national security is extremely important and you talk about isis and obviously we even know that when things go wrong in the middle east where we previously had taken ground and now it's lost again that has very pervasive effects on the veterans who fought left pieces of themselves there in many ways and the emotional connection continues long after you're home from war oh oh sure and you know the the veteran community is like the rest of america we don't we don't seek with one voice nor should we you know we mm-hmm. have you know we have left right and center we have hawks and doves and and we have veterans with a wide variety of operational experience or or educational experience and so I think it's healthy to have these discussions, and, and it's, it's enlightening to the people in the audience to hear what their rep, potential representatives, uh, how much time and effort they've put into trying to understand these issues before they are elected into office. Because as a veteran, some of their answers to this would influence whether I vote for them or not. But I, I agree with you, Linda, that a town hall is a great chance because, for instance, um, Say it's, say it's Governor Huckabee, he's seeking the 50 people. Well, you might have a good chance to, 
to have asked mm-hmm. him this question and hear an answer because maybe a lot, of, a lot of other people there are answering. So, uh, and I'm just using him as one example. Who, sure. uh, I saw I, I saw him talk recently, and so I think that uh, if veterans have a chance to go to these town halls, if they if they live in one of these states where where it's important right off the bat, they should consider raising their hand and asking these questions. Well, and I also think they should also get involved in the election process if they are interested. That is how we are getting more veterans into state office, county office, and and ultimately to federal office. Because that will help shape the thinking and the policies with a lot more experiential wisdom than is perhaps shared now when there are so few. Um, There was a statement made years ago that said if you were sending your child to war, what would be the decision that you would make versus someone else's child? And so I, I think you're yeah, very, that, you're that, right. Yeah, and I agree. I, I think someone like, for instance, Senator Webb or Senator McCain, who have both served mm-hmm. and both have children who served, right. are going to think of this a lot differently than another politician who hasn't had that experience. And I, I'm not I'm not saying that in a bad way. They just haven't had that experience. Right. And so they haven't, they haven't, gone through this and, and and granted personal feelings are only part of the calculation for going to war but it is an important one and frankly I, I guess to sum it all up on what we talked about it's important for our veterans to get involved state local federal levels and and to make a difference in the national dialogue when it comes to our national security i agree and there are two resources you can go to to volunteer your time dnc.com and GOP.com, which will allow you to go and have a voice and and take part because it is important to participate and to have your thoughts be aired. Thank you so much for this discussion. We will continue this on future shows. Thank you, Byron, for your time today. SuccessVets.com, you're listening to Military Network Radio, and we will talk with you next week. Thank you for tuning in today to Military Network Radio. You can find our show at our website, www.toginet.com forward slash Military Network Radio. Also, www.militarynetworkradio.com and in iTunes under Military Network Radio. Join us next week when we bring you another program to enhance your